2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Nick Astle.
3: The thing about giving birth to a human child is that you get to hold the baby when you finish. But when you give birth to a cheese baby, uh, you need that thing to flush and you need it to flush now.
2: That and more, but before that, I just want to let you guys know, if you go over to Patreon this week, patreon.com slash risk, you will find a new bonus story by the wonderful Sophia Fern Brown, and it sounds a little bit like this.
0: Uh, Yeah, Uh, evacuating all white clients immediately to the safe shelters away from black hair struggle. Please follow the signs of evacuation up my ass and around the corner. Thank you. (laughs)
2: Also want to give a little shout out to our two latest Patreon members, Richard Rodnitsky and Emma Beckman-Moore. Thank you so much, guys. We always give a shout out to anyone giving $25 a month or more, but you can give in various amounts if you go to patreon.com slash risk. Uh, It's very, very, very essential to risk continuing to exist that we get that kind of support and if you want to do a one-time donation you can just go to paypal.me slash risk show now here's the show Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Yoko Miwa Trio behind me now. Yoko is a fan of the show! And she sent us this new single called Largo Desolato" from her upcoming new album Songs of Joy. I can't wait to hear the whole album because this track is gorgeous. Well folks, we are getting ready for our next live stream on December 4th at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can get your tickets at wrist-show.com/tour, our big winter holidays show. I can't wait, so be sure and be there with us. And we're calling this week's episode Suddenly. Uh, four stories wherein suddenly something crazy happens. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Jacoby Cochran back on the show, but before that, A little something from Nick Astle, but before that, a story that Julie Polk shared on one of our recent live streams. You can find her at juliepolk.com. Here she is now with a story we call Chemistry Class.
1: When I was in eighth grade, we got a new science teacher, and her name was Eliza, and we loved her. She laughed at all of our dumb, stupid kid jokes, but she managed also to keep us in line. She was sort of tall and not really girly she wasn't mean but she uh, she didn't wear a lot of makeup she wore polo shirts i it was the eighties forgive her, but she was still youthful and fun she was I know that now that uh, we were her first teaching gig. We loved her so much that after she gave us an eight-week long introductory chemistry class, we actually created an entire illustrated comic book of the adventures of Elementary Mentory Adam and her nemesis, the Heavy Hydrogen Gang, for her, which is an incredible thing for a bunch of 13-year-olds to do. This is how much we loved her. And she was also my, my field hockey and lacrosse coach. And I... At this time all throughout adolescence I sort of hovered kind of in the in the lower tier, not totally bottom, but like sort of second tier popularity, but I was buoyed by athletic ability. And so the coaches in my life were important. And so she was an important piece there too on the field hockey and lacrosse fields. And so she was driving me home from field one day from practice and before If that alarms anybody in this day and age, I should let you know that was totally normal. At my school, I went to a Quaker school which is as close as you can get to having a prep school run by hippies. We called people by their first names. We once had an entire day off canceled from classes so we could talk about nuclear disarmament, like that kind of place. So it wasn't that unusual. So anyway, Eliza is driving me home from field after practice in her little VW rabbit, and we're just kind of chit-chatting. And then she looked at me kind of really directly, and she said so uh, so how are things is is everything okay and it It stopped me cold because the truth was that at home, everything was not okay. Everything looked okay. It looked like my parents had a great marriage. Um, And I had this golden boy older brother who was four years ahead of me at school. He was the captain of the soccer team and like really cute and photo editor of the yearbook. Everybody loved him. But there were a lot of things that people at school did not know. One of them was that I had. Another brother who they didn't know about mostly because he had been, even at this point in adolescence, a hardcore drug addict. He didn't go to school with us, he had lied, he had stolen, and he. I grew up assuming that he was gonna die before he was 25 because I just. It was that bad. It was really, really bad. Um, and he took almost all of my parents' attention. And so between my parents dealing with him and my oldest brother being such a focus of attention at school, I rarely, throughout my adolescence, felt kind of seen at all. And On top of that, because of all of this pressure in our house, there were these huge fights regularly. There was just eruptions of anger. And that was probably understandable because of the pressures put on my parents by my drug addict brother. It was certainly understandable. But my mother had grown up in... uh, this very fancy kind of waspy neighborhood. If you've ever seen the Philadelphia story, I actually grew up in Philadelphia, not in that neighborhood, but in a family that was not unlike that on my father's side, social registered, debutantes, the whole ball of wax. But my mother, Although she grew up in that neighborhood, her father was not a doctor or a banker or something respectable. He actually ran a sort of regional uh, illegal numbers game. So not the Philadelphia story, but the sting. But what it meant for her was that because her dad was a racketeer among the wasps, it became very, very family mission critically important that it seemed on the outside like everything was on the up and up, no matter what it was like underneath. So it had been ingrained in her from childhood that it was critically, critically important that things look appropriate and normal. And so much of her anger and the eruptions that I grew up with came when she was afraid that things didn't look normal. So on that day when Eliza looked me in the eye and she said, how... How are things? Are they okay? It was one of the first times I remember that an adult who wasn't in my family was looking at me. I felt seen, really, for the first time. Like they were seeing through the facade, and that was amazing. And it was also kind of terrifying because I felt like the facade that I felt responsible for maintaining might have these cracks in it. Like, it might just crumble. And so I immediately was like, yeah, it's it's fine. Everything is fine. And we just dropped it. But I have to say, it somehow just knowing that there was an adult there, somebody outside my family who seemed to at least intuit that things weren't what they seemed in my home life, functioned as this kind of release valve. I felt... Like I could turn to somebody, even if I never did. And that was an enormous help. And so a couple of years passed, things went on, and then one day in the fall of 10th grade, I walked over with my friend Jenny to her house. And Jenny did not go to my school. Jenny lived in my neighborhood. I'd known her ever since I was, I don't know, nine or 10 or something. And she lived with her mom. And another woman who was named Maggie. I never really thought about Maggie and Barbara, Jenny's mom's relationship, but they just sort of were there together. And then one day, I remember vaguely Jenny turned to me and she was like, you know that my mom and Maggie are like partners, <laughs> right? Like romantic partners. And I was I was probably about 12. I was like... Yeah, sure. And then we just went right on with what we were doing because we did not give a shit. And I was like, duh. So it was not a big deal until that afternoon in 10th grade when Jenny and I walked into her house and we went down into her basement and we surprised Maggie in the basement building cabinets, which is not a metaphor, and I do just want to say right now, from here on in, I'm going to be trafficking in some lesbian stereotypes. I can't help it. It's just what happened. So this was actual carpentry happening in the basement, and Maggie looked up surprised, and then... This other woman she was with looked up, surprised, and the other woman was not Jenny's mom. The other woman was Eliza. I don't remember exactly how we all responded to this moment, but I know it was very clear that we had caught them because in addition to the surprise on everybody's faces and the fact that she was completely out of any context that I had for Eliza, there was another expression that flitted across her face and it was fear. I don't remember what Jenny and I talked about. I don't remember the rest of that day. I only remember going to school the next Monday when I had chemistry class. This time, 10th grade chemistry, a full semester-long class, taught once again by Eliza. And I walked into class, and she didn't look at me. She turned away from me. She wouldn't call on me. And Mm -hmm. I remember being devastated, by this moment, because the chaos in my house hadn't stopped. It had gotten worse. As my brother's addiction had gotten worse, as I had grown into mid-teenagehood and started fighting with my mother naturally more anyway, it was a disaster underneath this shiny surface. And somewhere along the line, I had realized that I had come to depend on Eliza as this release valve much, much more than I had ever understood. Because the moment that I walked into class and she turned away from me, I felt bereft. I felt betrayed. I didn't understand what what was happening, Mm. (laughs) but I knew that this invisible ballast that she had provided for me had gone away and that it was because of something that she had done. And I also felt Something that a teenager never should Which was a rush of power Because in the moment that she stopped looking at me I understood for the first time That she was scared, rightly or wrongly She was afraid that I might hold the power To destroy her life I went to a liberal school But this was... The 80s. It was the mid-80s, it was pre-don't ask, don't tell. AIDS was terrifying people. And despite looking back on what I now see as an almost comical list of tells, like the polo shirts and the Birkenstocks and the field hockey coaching being obvious that that Eliza was gay, none of us and the student body ever thought about it. It wasn't a thing that you discussed at this school. She was not out. And I have to say this rush of power that I felt made it really, really clear to me why it is that we don't let 15-year-olds vote, that we don't bind 15-year-olds to lifetime decisions. No teenager should have that kind of power over anybody's life, Mm. whether or not it was true. And so over the next bunch of months, I, I wrestled. I found myself just grappling with these acutely adult questions of love and fear and family and betrayal. And I had conversations with Jenny, whose family was being torn apart for real by something that my beloved teacher had done. And I was angry about that. And I was angry that Eliza didn't trust me. But I also knew what it felt like to have a secret that felt like life and death. And because Eliza and I had never spoken about this explicitly, and because probably at 15, I'm not sure, in fact, I I can't imagine that I would have had the language to approach this conversation about this situation that we were in, in any way, anyway, there wasn't anything I could do but wait. And there wasn't anything that she could do but wait. And so... We just went on throughout the semester She mostly ignoring me, me just plodding on, waiting for her to understand that whatever was going to happen, somehow it was important to me that it be okay. And I think that it slowly began to dawn on her after the months went by and no rumors sprouted up at school about her being a home-wrecking, science-teaching, lacrosse-playing lesbian, that I had not, in fact, given away her secret And she slowly started to call on me again. I didn't really obviously ask what was going on with her in her life, but Jenny told me that Maggie had moved out of the house. And if you flash forward, what you know is that everything turned out to be okay. Maggie and Eliza eventually moved to Vermont again. I'm sorry. It just... What happened? Um, They... Jenny's mom met someone else, moved to Pittsburgh, they spent the rest of their lives together happily. So it was all fine, but I didn't know that in the fall of 10th grade. I just was bouncing around in this sea of adult stuff. And then finally, one day, toward the end of the semester, there was a basketball game. Our home basketball team was playing, and I was there. It was a Friday night, and I was sitting in the bleachers, and there was an empty seat beside me, and Eliza came in, and she sat down next to me, and she didn't say anything, and I didn't say anything, but we just kind of kept looking straight ahead, cheering when we were supposed to cheer, cheering when we won. And then she got up when the game was over and she started to walk away and then she stopped and she turned to me and she said, uh, so, I'll see you in class on Monday. Thanks.
3: When I was 15 years old, I went to a summer camp that, for whatever reason, had cheese cubes cut up with every single thing that we ate. And so breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, if you wanted cheese cubes, you could get cheese cubes, and as someone who loves cheese, I was thrilled. I felt like I had died and gone to Wisconsin heaven, so I was eating as much cheese as I could get my hands on. But, I was also a little naïve about what cheese would do to my body's ability to take a normal poop. And so after a week of eating nearly nothing but cheese, I had developed an opiate-addict level of constipation. Like abdominal distress, labor contractions, sit on the toilet for an hour and cry. And so after about a day of this, I finally summoned up the courage to go and talk to Tom, the camp caretaker, and I asked him, Tom, please, could you go and get some X-lax for me from town? I'm dying here. And a couple of hours later, thankfully, he obliged. And so I took probably a double dose and set out to face the rest of the day, blissfully unaware of the carnage that had been set before me. By dinnertime, the miracle of modern medicine had turned my body into a violent, bathroom-clearing, toilet-clogging machine. And by 7 o'clock, when we were at chapel time, I was experiencing serious contractions. And soon they were less than three minutes apart, and I don't need a doctor to tell me that I am fully dilated. There's not a doula in the world who's going to walk through this birth plan with me. I wish I had known what Lamaze breathing was. So I sneak out the back and waddle my way to the bathroom, pausing along the way for contractions to pass. I get there, and by the grace of God, I'm completely alone when I arrive. Time had no meaning to me anymore. I must have passed. I have no idea how much. 20 minutes? Maybe it was three hours? Uh, I'm not sure. But eventually I must have finished because I remember crying tears of joy or tears of pain. I, I'm not sure which. The thing about giving birth to a human child is that you get to hold the baby when you finish, but when you give birth to a cheese baby, uh, you need that thing to flush, and you need it to flush now. But I wasn't having much success with that. And so, imagine my embarrassment when I had to go and find Tom, the camp caretaker, and explain to him that now that I had had X-lax, I needed him to bring me a plunger. Tom goes off to the storage shed and comes back with a plunger in his hand and a smile on his face and says, I guess that X-lax worked, huh? I shake my head and walk away with the plunger in hand and mutter to myself, You have no idea, buddy. The first couple plunges are full of hope, but after a while I soon see that this plunger is not going to cut the mustard. And so I sneak off to the woods next to the bathroom and frantically search for whatever I can find to get this poop to go down. Eventually, I settle on a stick from the woods and sneak back to the bathroom. I don't need to describe to you what I did next, but suffice it to say... The bathroom worked again after that. Thank God, no one else was in that bathroom. I have never been so thankful to hear the full flush of a toilet in my entire life. And that's the story of how I wrecked a toilet, my dignity, and my butt, all in the span of one night.
4: What's up, everybody? Uh, A couple years ago, I was standing at the border between Argentina and Chile, and I was freezing my ass off. I had on some sweats, a hoodie, and a backpack, and I had three things on my mind. One, mountains are fucking majestic. I'm from the south side of Chicago. As you can imagine, I ain't grow up seeing a lot of mountainscapes and right there I was standing in the dead of winter looking out on this mountain and the only word I could think was majestic. The second thing I was thinking was everybody at this border is staring at us. You see, I'm there with my best friend B. I'm a six foot black man. She's a five foot white woman. She's been living in South America for about a year, but still. It's about 500 people standing at this border and everyone's eyes are on us. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I was headed to South America, everybody told me to look out for everybody else to always be on the lookout, which sounded pretty normal to me because I'm always the person that people are telling to be on the lookout for. So honestly, the stairs wasn't that big a deal because the third thing on my mind was, do I have weed in my bag? Yeah, do I have weed in my bag? I mean, I always got weed on me. Like, seriously, right now, you can't see it. But I got weed on me. And if you know anything about South America, they don't really like drug trafficking of any kind. And I'm almost always trafficking drugs. And so about 500 of us are standing outside of an array of cars, vans, buses for about two hours, freezing. Freezing. I'm certain I got weed on me. And I'm about to go to jail. And the only Spanish I know how to say is mi espanol es muy mal. (sighs) Lucky enough, we get through the checkpoint. Everybody gets back into their cars, vans, buses, and we go down the mountain. And as it gets dark, I'm gonna be honest with you, mountains move from being majestic to terrifying. Real quick. And we go down the mountain into this small town of Mendoza, Argentina, and we get into this cab and we go back into the mountains. And it's getting darker and darker. And I'm looking at B because we're on our way to our hostel for the weekend. And about 40 minutes later, we pull up in a small town called Luan de Cuyo. And as soon as we get out the cab and we get our bags, the cab drives right off into the darkness, which I'm thinking. (laughs) <laughs> okay. As we walk up to the sign, Lemon Tree Hostel, it is beautiful. I get my phone out and I take a picture immediately. But it doesn't sound like anybody's around. We can't hear anybody. And it smells like firewood and chamomile and old cigarettes. We walk into what we think is the lobby and B and I set our biggest bags down and nobody's in the lobby. All we see is the front desk and in the corner is this old television screen with a black and white image that's showing us a picture of being myself. What? No. But we can't seem to make out where the camera is. Now, let me be real with you. Um, I don't fucking like horror. All it is, get out, us, Lovecraft. I'm watching Lovecraft. That shit is fire, but uh, I don't like horror. From the south side of Chicago, I got enough real shit to be afraid of. I don't like artificial fear, the anticipatory fear. Uh, It's not my fancy. So as I look at B and B looks back at me, I'm thinking to myself, everything's okay. So I walk up to the lobby and I do what everybody does. I hit the bell on the desk. Beep. Nobody answers. Beep. No one answers. Rule of three.
2: <laughs> Not the rule of three.
4: <laughs> and right as my hand goes to hit the buzzer, the sound of this dog just happens to pick up in the background. <laughs> it sounds like a big fucking dog. Ooh, 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 ooh. So we leave out the lobby, of course. And we go around the side to what looks like an entrance into the hostel. And I try to push my way into the door. Nothing happens. So B and I are looking at each other the entire time the chorus of this dog woo 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 and I mean it's getting closer and closer and closer and I look at B and she looks back at me and we don't say anything we just make our way back to the lobby and as soon as we walk into the lobby the dog phase into the silence and the firewood and chamomile and leftover cigarettes but there are no butts there are no users there's just a fucking camera black and white looking at us showing us a picture of ourselves but uh i can't tell where the camera is so i go back to the buzzer beep beep and that fucking
5: Y'all.
4: and it's close as fuck and I look at me and I say you know I didn't sign up for no Texas chainsaw Argentina massacre type shit and she looks at me and she has like that beautiful white girl voice that says no 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 I looked up on Yelp I looked up on Google I know this is a real place it's the Lemon Tree Hostel it's real it has to be real I paid a deposit it's definitely real Kobe I pr- promise is real and I'm looking back and I say it's better be real but both of us remain calm because we're smart people even as the dog rattles in the background we run to the side entrance and I just run right through the door and we push ourselves in because we think to ourselves in this moment Eddie Murphy taught me when I was a kid run but I remind myself Kobe You are in the majestically terrifying mountains of Luan de Cuyo. Where the fuck are you gonna run to? So with hands on knees, as I try to catch my breath, me and B look up down the hallway and there is a row of mannequins lining the interior. In front of us is Jason, complete, with painter suit and machete. Uh -uh. Behind it is Freddy Krueger with Christmas sweater and Edward Scissorhands. Behind it sitting in a throne is the king of the White Walkers himself. And just for shits and giggles, Heisenberg is standing next to him with the fucking hat. (laughs) We look up on the walls and it's a painting of the most villainous motherfuckers you can think of I'm talking Harley Quinn Lannister brothers like some real sick shit (laughs) y'all we frozen on the ground when we hear a sound in the distance we dart into a room it's like real dark and we look into the corner and like perched on a fucking chair is the girl from the exorcist Even as I think about it right now, my blood pressure is raising. So B and I look at each other and we get that type of courage that's not like comes from a place of strength, but that place that says, if I'm gonna die, then let it come faster. So we just like grab hands and we walk out and follow the sound down the hallway, past the mannequins, past venom and a fucking gorilla. And when we round the corner, standing in front of us are three men. In the middle, the guy's like six foot four with tattoos all over his face and his hands and his arms. And hey, I'm not a judger. (laughs) You know? Okay. Even though everybody told me to look out for these kind of groups of people, you know, I took that as code for, you know, racism. And as for someone who's experienced that, I thought to myself, I'm not gonna pass this off to another person, but I'm not gonna lie to you. As I stood there with my shitty Spanish and my five foot white girl, best friend, I looked at these dudes and out of one of their mouths, he said, Soy Malahunta and I thought to myself I never met a South American murderer before but if I had to write one in one of my stories his name would be Malahunta (laughs) and of course my stupid ass said Soy Kobe (laughs) I tried to have that external sense of calm as my friends started translating I didn't know what the hell they were saying more people started funneling in behind this is the furthest I've ever been away from home and as I was starting to think about the collection of signals and red flags that I received I looked deep into this man's eyes and I said (laughs) Wu-Tang you see in the collection of tattoos on his face I recognized the symbol from back home the Rizza, the Jizza, the Ghostface Killer, the Method Man, Inspector Deck. Ah, oh, man. And he responded Wu Tang. So, what's up, man? Yeah. I want to hear that Wu Tang joke. Wu Tang
5: again? Ah, oh, again and again.
4: And the next thing I would know, they were taking Brooke and I into the backyard where everybody happened to be, where apparently they couldn't hear us panicking in the front room. A collection of 12 people sitting around firewoods, smoking cigarettes, drinking matcha. And that beast of a dog was now just a puppy at my feet. I sat down, and through his translator, Malahunta started telling this story, because I mentioned I was from Chicago. He could tell that I understood a little bit about the Wu-Tang, and he told me this story about this 12-year-old boy who found this box of tapes and CDs and started rifling through it, and found the music of Wu-Tang and Tupac and Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown and Jay-Z and 50 Cent, and for a minute, I was like, is this motherfucker clairvoyant? Because it sounds like he's telling me my story, but in fact, he was telling me his own. Because it turns out that Mala Junta is the biggest rapper in Argentina, and him and his crew are on tour, and are staying in the Lemon Tree Hostel for the weekend. And they, too, find this to be a creepy place, but they don't have all the American nuance to understand just how fucked up of a place this actually
2: is
4: (laughs) and right as they are about to pass me the tea because they share it as a community something we of course cannot do right now i set my bag down and it spills over and out of one of the invisible pockets a joint slips out and under the moonlight, I picked the joint up and I looked at Malahunta who, earlier in the night, said he doesn't speak much English. So most of his story was translated. He said, my English is very bad. I looked at him with that look at the joint in my hand. and I just gave him that nod that you don't need to speak English or Spanish to understand. It just says, you trying to smoke this. <laughs> and Malahunta reaches in his shirt pocket and he lifts out a joint that's not as big as mine because I rolled my blunts on the south side of Chicago and he put it to his lips and he gave me that look that said even though I don't speak English and you don't speak Spanish hell yeah I'm trying to smoke this and though I still fucking hate horror I don't remember this story as the haunted hostel but the hostel that turned into home beneath the majestically terrifying mountains of Luan de Cuyo. I appreciate you all, thank you.
5: To check your Yo, your yeah. We don't need that. It's ten o'clock, ho, oh, where the fuck's you see that? Feeling
6: mad, hostile, we're an no one like Christ when I speak the gospel. Sold with the holy roll, then attack the globe with the buckets. style the ruckus. Ten times ten men, committing mad sin. Turn the other chicken, I'll break your fucking chin. slave boom bangs like African drones. Treatment. My planet grease like black unemployment Yeah, another one there
5: took a genius He got the fuck out of here The best of check in that The best of tech in that the best
2: This is risk. This is Wu Tang. I mean, how? <laughs> and we just heard from Jacoby Cochran, who you can find at jacobycochran.com. I'll tell you, those storytellers from Chicago always bring it. Before Jacoby, we heard a little radio anecdote from Nick Astle. I believe what happened there is that Nick had shared that little anecdote on Reddit. And John LaSala, our editor, saw it, reached out to him, and he was game to tell it for Risk. And you can pitch us your own stories by going to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from the one and only Jessica McNabb. Oh, my God. It was such a thrill to meet Jessica and have her on the show for the very first time. You're going to hear what a great storyteller and what a force to be reckoned with (laughs) she is you can find jessica on instagram at jessica mcnab that's j-e-s-s-i-e-c-a mcnab and here she is now with a story we call evolution of my inner black bitch (laughs) very funny for me to say that title
6: So I have worked in the world of retail for a very long time up until recently. And one day when I'm at work, this little old white lady comes into the store. Now she's a very put together, nice little lady, look like she might have a little bit of money, nice little pearl. She's coming in the store, get her eggs. And um, you know, I try to make her feel nice. So I'm like, Hey, how you doing today, honey? I was like, you look fantastic. And she was like, oh, thank you. You know, thank you. And I was like, and your hair is fierce. I mean, it is fierce. You look like you just came from the salon. I mean, it had that like that little purple tint to it that I love to see um, little old women. And uh, she was like, yeah, you know, I just got my hair done and, and thank you, you know, thank you. So she was like, you know, I really like your hat. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, but but I don't have a hat on. I have a a visor on, but I have my locks up. And I used to put my locks up on top of my head, like a a water spout almost, I would say. So she was. I was like, you mean, you know, my visor? You you like my visor, this whole thing? I, I can't stand it. It takes me forever to get my hair up in it. And she was like, no, the hat on top of your head. And I'm like. I know this raggedy bitch after I just said some nice things about her is not talking about my hair is a hat on the top of my head. So, you know, I try to be nice. I try to be cool. And I was like, no, no, no. I was like, you know, that's my hair. And by this time, one of my customers chime in on the side and because I call them my fans in the store. It's where I do most of my stand up. And um, she chimes in and she was like, it's awesome, isn't it? And, you know, it's standing on top of her head. It's just wild. It's red and she was like in a very nice type of way was like oh that can't be your hair I mean it must be a wig of some sort and I'm like I know this bitch is not trying to talk about my locks and as long as I've been growing my locks over 11 years she's trying to tell me that my locks is messed up I was like no it's not a wig so I pull my ponytail over to her and I'm like You know, go ahead and touch it. Pull it. It's really my hair. And she's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. And I'm just like, what is your problem with my hair? She was like, you know, you people can't grow your hair that long. And right at that moment, she poked the biggest inner black bitch that I have. And I was like, you people? what the hell does she mean i mean she totally got the wrong chick when she said you people i was like you know what i'm not even gonna mess with this lady right now because she's really bugging me out but right at that moment when she said you people i was like thrown like back in time to a time where i was in grammar school in grade school i went to a school that was predominantly white and when I say predominantly white I mean I was the only black person there until my sister came in second grade I had lots of trouble lots of trouble right from the beginning you know lots of fighting lots of, of people wanted to beat me up and just based on the color of my skin and the way I looked so it was just not the best experience ever for school but I could just remember one day one day on the playground I was surrounded by five boys, five white boys surrounding me on the playground. And they were just picking on me and pushing me and calling me names like Coon and Blackie and Nigger and telling me to go back to Africa. And I'm just like, I'm so scared. You know, because I have been having so much trouble in school, up until fourth grade that i asked my uncles to teach me how to fight <laughs> so my uncles are close to my age they're like my brothers so it was like a a, a boot camp that they put me in right away i was the oldest grandkid. they took everything that they knew about fighting and instilled it in me and they were like when you go out there and they mess with you he's like just grab the biggest one he said grab the biggest one and hit that one first so now we're in this fight and these kids are they're they're just surrounding me and they're pushing me and you know i'm petrified i don't know what i'm going to do to get out of this i'm calling for help nobody's coming to help me then one of them the biggest one he pushed me down and he spit on me well i'ma tell you what all that training that i just got from my uncles snapped right into play and I came up like a whirlwind. I mean a whirlwind. The first thing I did was hit him right in his throat So he couldn't say nothing else and then I just turned into this crazy ninja I was just punching and kicking kicking and punching fighting. I mean just fucking people up for real I mean, I really was I was just fighting like I was crazy. I just went nuts And here come the motherfucking teacher Jess 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 get off of them get off of him I'm like bitch is you for real get off of them where were you at when they was on me how about get them off of me they had me trapped and cornered and now you want to come when I'm getting my goods on when I'm getting my rights and less on when I'm getting my uppercuts on now you want to come no nah, bitch no nah. so now <laughs> so now we're going we got to go to the principal's office. So now I go straight to the principal's office because I'm good. All five of them, they got to stop off at the nurse's office and get some help, get some band-aids and get some better dine. You know, they got to get fixed up before they come to the principal's office. So they call my parents to the principal's office and my dad, he worked all the time. He ain't got time for this shit. My mom comes in, she's a young bride, overwhelmed with four kids. She don't got time to be coming to the school. So now the principal is like, you know, we're going to have to suspend your daughter because she beat up these five boys. And my mother's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. I know you're not talking about suspending my daughter after she just got jumped by five boys and whooped their asses. And now you want to suspend her? No, 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 no. It's not going down like that. It's not going down like that. She was protecting herself, which is something this school should have been doing. You guys should have been protecting her. I don't understand how it got this far that she has to fight five boys on the playground. So really and truly, they didn't really want no parts of my mother because they couldn't tell if she was my trainer you know, if I was the second coming of her, you know, they just they just didn't know what they were going to get And five grown white people did not want to get their ass whooped in that office today By the champ and she was the heavyweight champ <laughs> That is for sure But um, it was just crazy and, and it was something that resonated with me For my entire life up until that point point. And I, I feel like, you know, like it's just a part of what I do now as an activist and fighting for people's rights and fighting for the underdog and dealing with people that can't fight for themselves. Cause I was a very passive kid. I did not fight for myself. That's what it took. And then, you know, of course they unleashed the beast. And it didn't take anything but the wind to blow for me to whoop your ass. But that's another story. Another day. So, <laughs> so now, you know, I just couldn't believe that, you know, this interaction with this lady at the store while she's buying eggs, this little, you know, put together petite lady was, you know, that triggered such a thing. So we get back and we're, and, and we're talking and she's like, you know, I just don't believe, you know, that that's your hair. I just don't believe it. And I'm like, so freaking pissed off by now that I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to show this bitch. I'm going to show this old raggedy bitch that this is my motherfucking hair. So I t- snatch off my visor and I pull, all, I'm, I got like eight hair ties in. I'm pulling my hair ties out and I start whipping my hair around, whipping it around, whipping it around. And then I just lay all of my locks on the counter like a fucking blanket. I was like, are they real now? Can you see that it's real now? Can you see that this is coming out of my scalp right now? this poor lady i think she wet her depends on the way out the door she was just like oh my god oh my god she's clutching her pearls oh my god and all i can say is i'm saying i was like you know what this bitch right here she better be glad i've been down in the water and that i've been baptized and i'm trying to get into heaven because i would have snatched her ass over that damn counter (laughs) i would have snatched her (laughs)
5: Huh. I punched him dead in his eyes, said Who you calling Henry? me?
2: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Queen Latifah behind me now, and we just heard from Jessica McNabb, who you can find on Instagram at Jessica McNabb. Folks, if you've never been to the site of our sister business, The Story Studio, at thestorystudio.org, definitely get over there because there are so many opportunities and different ways to learn about storytelling. There's two-day workshops, there's 90-minute webinars, there's our corporate workshops. You can learn about storytelling for your own personal growth, or storytelling for your career, for job interviews, for presentations and pitches, for storytelling shows like this one. And we have our super talented faculty, uh, people who are otherwise producers, writers, performers in their own right each with their own philosophies, their own experiences to share with you in order to help you to tell stories in a more powerful, more human, more moving way. Again, that is all at thestorystudio.org. The holidays are right around the corner, also. And the Risk Book at theriskbook.com makes the perfect gift. 37 of our most hilarious, most terrifying, most beautiful, most amazing true stories, totally rewritten for the page with QA with the authors and the history of the podcast in the introduction there. That is at theriskbook.com or anywhere books are sold. And did you know that I do little cameo videos for people to say, you know, happy birthday or sing a song or send a sincere message? That is at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. I also do my own one on one teaching of storytelling to people at KevinAllison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear... (laughs)